0: Log radio.
1: Good morning. This is Howard Smith and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brudico. Ronaldo, as you all well know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the Board of Directors of the Academy as well as a Vice President and Wealth Advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several broad-ranging topics along with our lightning round. We're also going to be adding a short update on the Fukushima nuclear reactor situation, and we'll be actually doing monthly updates on that uh, situation in Japan, which, despite people's lack of attention on it, still has not gone away and still presents some very serious questions. We've um, changed our format a little bit from last time. We're no longer taking live questions, but we do have a number of questions that were sent in over the past few weeks, Uh, that we'll be referencing during the course of our conversations today. As always, one of our purposes of these, or I should say our purpose of these monthly calls is to present you, our listeners and members um, and viewers, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today we're going to be focusing again on the Occupy Wall Street movement and what that means. Our second topic, that will take place after the half-hour break, um, was how should we be looking at the crisis in Europe and how is that going to be affecting your financial planning? During our lightning round, which is a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate, we're going to be focusing today on ETFs, both asset-backed and non-asset-backed ETFs, and what you should be aware of uh, regarding news stories that may reference the potential bubble in the ETF sector, and is that relevant or not? Um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Ronaldo. And again, purpose of these calls, Ronaldo, is to present our listeners with concrete, actual ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society to the world at large. Would you expand on this and uh, explain to our listeners what do we really mean by this today?
0: Howard, which one would you want me to start with? Well, why don't you... Which Our
1: basic theme, let's start with that, socially conscious business practices. How, how does the Academy bring that forward to... the the public.
0: Yeah, well, I think that <clears throat> and, and we're going to, part of what's going to be our uh, our uh, Fukushima update is we're going to talk about something that even when it's not trying to be socially conscious, the business community can do for society, and we're going to be talking about something going on in Japan where the business community is actually doing something that will benefit everybody, but they're doing it because they have a sense of enlightened self-interest, i.e. it's good for them. But I think that the uh, the number one issue that we w- we're going to be talking about today, which is this whole concept of um, Occupy Wall Street and, and how Occupy Wall Street is uh, a uh, a movement, really. And, 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 and it'd be fun if when we get questions, and I think you've already got some questions you told me that came in earlier, which is great, but if we get questions about it, I would really like to see people look at the Occupy Wall Street movement as a way to focus our attention, our lens, if you will, on what we ought to be thinking about as a country. So in the broadest possible sense, Occupy Wall Street is really about economic and social justice. It's about how over 80% of the wealth created, personal wealth in the last 30 years, has gone to the top one and a half, two percent 2%. Right. And that disparity has resulted in the decimation of the middle class.
1: Now, Let me play devil's advocate for a moment, though, because I often hear a line, and I'll see stories like this in the paper, or letters to the editor, and coming from the opposite direction, of those of us who might think about social justice and, and financial equality, people on the conservative side, and I don't mean the the elite, but the, but a lot of the average people, they think, well, people should work for their own money and they shouldn't expect a handout, and why should people who worked hard to make their money turn around and give it to people who don't, okay, all because these that, slackers.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: It's a you very don't simplistic don't interpretation don't of things, But 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 how do you speak well, to people
0: like that? who
1: might have an open mind?
0: First of all, I ask them, do you know what a red herring is? Let me tell you what a red... Because people hear that expression, a red herring. I don't mean a securities document. What I mean is a red herring is an, a, a metaphor for when a bloodhound is chasing a suspect. If you drag a red herring across your tracks, it will distract the dog, it will lose your scent. So the point of a red herring is to detract the, the person trying to find out what's really going on from, from, by, by, by distracting them. So let's talk, let's just break apart what you just said. Because well meaning people in this country have been voting for politicians for 30 years now who've been decimating their personal financial interests, meaning the interests of the people voting for them. Why don't they know that? Why don't they realize how bad they got screwed? And by the way, I think Occupy Wall Street is the first time that a clump of these people realize oh, wait a minute, I'm the 99%, I'm the guy that's getting hurt here. I'm the police officer that's going to be unemployed. I'm the teacher. I'm the fireman. And I didn't do anything wrong. In fact, I did everything right. But But the city, the state, the county, and the federal government has mismanaged their affairs. So the question isn't, should the wealthy give more to the poor? Remember, there's nobody in America today, not Democrats, not Republicans, not left, not right, who are saying that we should expand social welfare systems. What we're saying is even the playing field. In other words, If you systematically act like an aristocrat, and you systematically make it tougher and tougher for the middle class, let me give you an example. We're the only industrial nation in the world where if you get into college, you'll end up paying for it the next 30, 40 years of your life. You'll come up with a debt of $250,000, $300,000 or more. In no other country in the world does that happen. Why? Because the theory is that an educated population makes you competitive globally, and it does. It makes it possible for you to get a job which pays more per hour. So if you dumb down the education system, if you, if you starve it for cash, what happens is you have an undereducated population, which, by the way, in the United States we have. So this generation today is less well-educated than the generation that preceded it. That has never happened since 1620 when they landed in Jamestown. People need to understand. Plymouth, huh? 16- Plymouth was
1: 1620. Jamestown was actually a little bit earlier.
0: 164. Excuse me. 1620 was Plymouth. You're correct. Thanks for correcting right. me. So the point is, since this is the sixth, early 1600s, every generation in America has been better educated than the last. We had the ed- we had the, the number one best education system, both at primary grades, high school, and at the level of college, in the world until very recently. And the result was that we created the industries of the future. What's happening now? because of the greed, literally greed, of the aristocracy in America, and I'll define who the aristocrats are in a second, because of that greed, over a 30-year period, we've destroyed the education system in the country. And so instead of having great paying jobs here, we're flipping burgers. Okay. Now, we, we need to realize that the societal, the framework of this question, is much broader than I'm wanting a handout from a rich guy. That's a red herring. The question really is, how do I operate in a society where all the rules are rigged against me? So, if I am making three, four, five hundred—and by the way, just parenthetically, there are several definitions of who a one percenter is. Some definitions, the one Occupy Wall Street uses, is five hundred fifty thousand dollars a year in income. Uh, another definition, uh, CNN, I believe, uses seven hundred thousand in income. Take your pick. Let's call it six hundred thousand, just midway in between. If you're making six hundred, th-
1: hmm? Paul Krugman had an interesting point. That's not really the one percent. That's benefited. It is the one tenth of 1% that has benefited uh, and grown their incomes by something like 400% over the past 30 years, whereas the rest of the uh, middle class has declined during that same time.
0: Exactly. Now, w- and what does that decline look like? Well, if I can't afford to send my kids to school, guess what? They're going to have a worse life than me, and that's what's happening. So now we have the first generation in the history of the United States of America since we were colonies. The first time where this generation will have less economic well-being than the one that preceded it, we are going backwards. That's societal. That's broader. That's not a poor guy asking for a rich guy for a handout. That's saying, wait a minute, you rigged the system. I haven't seen anything this bad, Howard, since the French Revolution. And and, and it's and, and and what happened you're there? Older by way? I huh?
1: you're, yeah, older you're older
0: right. than
1: I thought, huh? Yeah, older than I thought.
0: Just a historian. So what's happening is the equivalent of the Marie Antoinette moment. Let them eat cake. We heard from Michael Bloomberg, who ostensibly is not even uh, a conservative Republican, when he basically said, don't blame the banks for all the crappy mortgages. It's the people's fault who took the loans. Well, if people really believe that, they deserve the shellacking they're now getting. The truth is, every major bank in this country, due respect, Howard, yours included, although, fortunately, you were out of the mortgage market, every major bank has got their hands slapped for something, and some of the banks, B of A, Wells Fargo, et cetera. And, of course, the famous names are countrywide. Those banks have been caught literally time after time. They cheated. They literally cheated on these mortgages. They, and, and they took stuff that was bad paper, and they knew it, and they chopped it up and sold it as good paper. And they destroyed probably 22% of the entire asset base of America. 22% is gone in the last two-plus years or years. So that system that broke down, that left us in this economic malaise where I might be a hard working guy but I can't get a job. So I say, gee, I gotta feed my family and I can't get a job and I'm I've got uh, I'm, I'm a middle manager, I gotta flip burgers because seven and a half dollars or eight dollars an hour is better than zero. So you have a systemic breakdown here. And and, and then and to take it to the to the last the next and last step. When you have such a systemic breakdown and the aristocrats and, and I'm gonna define the aristocrats in this country as the top two percent but they're dominated by the top one-tenth of one percent. And notice the definitions of the one-percenters and two-percenters has nothing to do with how much assets you lo- own. Okay? It's not about what you got in the bank. It's not about how much you already grabbed and put a stashed away. It's about what you're making this year. And why is it that you can afford to spend zillions of dollars for tax lawyers to write tax codes to buy the Congress so that Warren Buffett pays less tax than the secretary? In fact, Warren Buffett, one of the top five richest men in the world, pays less than everybody in his office. Now, that can only happen if you rig the system. And what I would invite our listeners to do is start calling me with questions and ask me specific, how is this rigged? How is that rigged? How is, and I'll point it out to you, one after the other after the other. But it starts with the tax code. So what I want, I'm going to make one comment about the tax code, and that is this. The tax code is not about collecting money, folks. The tax code is about shaping social behavior. If it was about collecting money, it would be about three or four or five pages long. It's, it, it, it's, it's so voluminous that the, 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 the Eternal Revenue Code of 1954 is amended. is a tissue-thin series of books that if you put them sideways on a shelf, eh, it's only two and a half feet long. But the interpretations, the regulations, and the rules that tell you what those pages mean fit entire libraries from floor to ceiling. Why is that important? Because you need to know that those rules all got written by people who could afford to pay lobbyists. People who could afford to influence the Congress, people who could influence the SEC, people who could influence the IRS. So if you've got a lot of money, as everybody knows, the court system works for you. It doesn't work for the little guy. Justice is blind, which means you only get the justice you can pay for. You don't get it, what you deserve. So you've got every system in the country is broken down because the aristocracy has abused its privilege. When somebody can jet around the country and... Uh, and live like literally a, a modern-day potentate, a king, and pay no taxes, the system was rigged. As they said in the days of Watergate, follow the money. It'll tell you who, who wrote the rules and how it got rigged. Last comment I want to make, and it's really, really important for people to understand this. If you really want to fix America, it's kind of simple. And you'll never fix it by cutting, cutting, cutting. All you got to do is create jobs. And to create jobs, all you have to do... Is restore a part of the taxes that the, that the upper 1% and 2% removed from themselves over the last 30 years. And I'm not even talking about restoring fully. I mean, I'm not even talking about back to the Clinton age and the Clinton era, which was an era of great prosperity because the middle class thrived. And in our country, when the middle class thrives, we all thrive, including the 1%ers. We had a tax rate that was dramatically higher than it is today put two and two together, folks. Without raising revenue, you can't have a society. And what's going on today, and this is my final point, is economic terrorism. We have a small group of people, less than 20% of the population, who are being very badly misled and who are economic terrorists. And their goal is to, is to bring the gov- shut the government down, basically. To bring it to its knees because they have some idealistic dream that in this state of less and less and less and less government, somehow everything would be better. Folks, it wouldn't be better. In fact, I've never met anybody who said, "Don't regulate the airlines. We don't care if planes fly out fall out of the sky." I've never met anybody who says, "I don't care if there's potholes in every in every street. I'll drive through them." I've never met anybody who said, "I don't I don't care if I need medical help, and I'm dying, and it's okay if you don't give it to me because I can't afford to write you a check while I'm sitting there in the emergency room." I've never met anybody like that, and neither of you. So what we have to look at is. Economic terrorism is when a small group of people hold up an entire society at the point of a gun and say, "We're going to destroy the society you guys built." The other eighty percent, because we're upset and mad. What they really need to do is do what the French Revolution did. Okay? Now, am I wild about the excesses of the French Revolution? I don't know how many thousands, tens of thousands people got, what, fourteen thousand people got guillotined or some darn thing died in that. No, no, and I'm not pleased that Napoleon Bonaparte came out of it. And that all happened because of people did not address the three things that the French Revolution started out to fix and got waylaid. What were those three things? Fraternité, égalité, liberté. Liberty, fraternity, and brotherhood, and, 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 and equality. So those three things, which are the bedrock of every democracy formed since then, and certainly the bedrock of American democracy, which was formed before that, every one of those principles we believe in. What happened in the French Revolution is the aristocrats got so ugly, let them eat cake, so the, the people who left them found themselves without, without any idea of how to stop it. And their movement became violent because a few people, Robespierre being principal amongst them, decided they could take that anger and they could turn it to their own personal aggrandizement. Frankly, I think Dick Armies like our modern-day Robespierre. I think the Koch brothers are like our modern-day Robespierre. So what we need to do is say, wait a minute. We're not going to be an unruly mob. We're not going to be out there guillotining people because we don't know what else to do. We're going to sit down and say to ourselves, What's, really wrong, what's wrong with America? And we can sum it up in two sentences. We need to have economic and social justice, and we need to restore the middle class. That's simple. Easy how to do, do this, by the way.
1: How do you think this is playing out in the, the Occupy movement? I mean, do you think that the people participating have this sophisticated view of what the, the economic scenario is, or is it just simply a simplistic say, hey, the rich have too much power and we don't? Uh, no, you, no, no, no. Think no,
0: no I don't think it's sophisticated. I think it's very simplistic, and I think it's very accurate. it's simplistic. The simplistic statement is the system is broken. It's been rigged, and they're right. It has been. I mean, look, I- I've been blessed. I mean, I didn't inherit money, but I've been blessed that I was able to go to the University of California system back in the '60s. My entire law degree, Howard, cost me three thousand dollars, including books. Okay, if that, if I were, if I were going into the UC system today, which by the way is a fraction of the quality it used to be because, again, it's been starved for cash, and therefore the power of what it used to create, which were the industries of the future, came out of California the UC system, that's been destroyed. So now we we have to realize this. do you know what the state of California has made back from me because of that $3,000 I got my degree from? Now, without that law degree, I would not be able to navigate through this broken system we're now living with. And And, and, and it seems to me that everybody wants to stop, take a deep breath, and go, wait a minute. This system's broken. If a guy like Ronaldo can't go to law school just because his parents weren't rich, something's wrong with the system. We better go fix the colleges and the universities and the law schools. But that's what Occupy Wall Street's saying. is This is an issue of social and economic justice. We, we, and, and, I'm, and I'm adding to it. As a matter of economic theory, without a good, vibrant middle class in America, this system doesn't work for anybody, including the one percent so i'm not against the one percent or the two percent heck i'm part of them and by the way if anybody would like to see a statement i did a four-minute youtube video at the request of occupy wall street uh... which is running we you send us an email we'll we'll give you a link to it It was out on, a, or you can go to truthout.org look me up there brutico and you'll see the video but the you have is, it on
1: the uh... the world business academy website but
0: you know well? i think we do have i think we do have it there now that's mm-hmm. right i think we do so, and if we don't, I'll make sure we do after this call today, if this radio.
1: And that's www.worldbusiness.org.
0: Yeah. If so the idea of the simplistic statement that it's broken, that idea, Howard, is so powerful because it starts with that recognition. If you don't know that you've been had, how are you going to fix it? So for all the people who complain that they wish occupy Wall Street, had an agenda, they wish they had you know points and they wish they were a political party, all that will come. All that will come. There will be, and there is actually a third-party movement right now in America, uh, and there's soon going to be a fourth-party movement, I believe. So it's, it's developing. So there will be political movements. There will be calls for specific political actions. I think that what happened, by the way, in Ohio two days ago was a... With
1: the vote you're talking about. Yeah,
0: it's a, it's a canary in the coal mine. What happened is...
1: Let's let's actually tell our viewers who may not have heard news what that vote was about with the unions.
0: Okay, so what happened was there was an uh, SB5, I think it was called, was a, was a law that uh, Case, Case, uh the governor of Ohio, Kasich, ran through. Now Kasich was a TV commentator before he was selected by the far right to be their candidate. He got elected governor of Ohio. First thing he did is he tried to basically close down the unions. I mean that's what SB five was about, and he got it through the Senate and 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 in the legislature and he got it passed into law. And when the teachers and the firemen, and 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 and, and the policemen. And all the other – the people who belong to the Hotel Workers Union. I mean, all these different people realize, oh, my God, he's destroying collective bargaining. We've got to repeal that law. So they – almost by a two-thirds vote, a state that is considered conservative, Republican governor, Republican Senate, Republican legislature, decided to repeal it by almost a two-thirds margin because they realized that that was another attempt – to destroy the ability of people to organize. Now, why did Kasich and his group of right-wing Koch brothers-funded guys want to do that? Simple. Because they felt if they could destroy the unions, they didn't care that the unions were helping to create decent-paying jobs for Americans. What they were trying to do was make sure that the unions were so bankrupt they couldn't support Democratic politicians to run against them. It was a very, very cynical play, very cynical ploy. And the people of Ohio woke up. Now, what's interesting is, The people of Ohio voted all those people in. So what's happened with that one was, oh, my goodness, we just woke up. The people we thought were our friends were kidding us. Now, am I pro-union? I'm not pro-union. I'm not negative. In fact, to me, unions occur when there is a need for workers to be protected, and they gain strength the more workers are abused. And to the extent that workers are treated well, unions have a harder time hanging on. So you don't have to be pro-union or against the unions to want to see SB 5 defeated. You just have to be rational. And, and when you destroy quality, middle-class jobs, when you say, you know what, we're not going to let you collectively bargain to keep your wage at a level where your kid can get to stay in school. Where did we go wrong as a society, Howard, when we accepted over the last 30 years that a single income is not adequate for an American family to survive? Where did we was an interesting
1: interesting phenomenon that happened, and I'm sort of witnessing this because I was a a young home buyer in the mid seventies where the banks uh, were forced at that point in time to consider both the income of a husband and a spouse as part of the income for buying a house previous to that, and most pe- younger people do not have any awareness of this that a woman's income was never taken seriously as part of a household. Uh, They were considered, oh, they're going to have children, and that doesn't count. We're not going to factor that in. When they did that, though, when that was done as a measure of equality, what it then meant is that families with two wage earners had an advantage over those with one. And that actually triggered, uh, and you may remember this as well, a huge inflation in housing prices around the country in the early to mid-'70s.
0: Yeah, because it, now
1: there was more money available, and therefore more sales, more movement, and it shifted the equation.
0: Well, yeah, unfortunately, the,
1: it shifted in a way that actually hurts a lot of middle-class people.
0: Well, it did, but, it, but something happened simultaneously. At that precise time was the the first shot heard around the world, if you will, when basically Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers. Now a
1: little bit later, but yeah, it was you know, same the of that,
0: right? So what was so going he did on that in sim- the early eighties?
1: Huh? Early eighties, early he did that. He came into power in nineteen eighty excuse me or well, the election 1980.
0: Yeah. So in, in the so in the thank you for correcting me again, so in the seventies, you had two things going on simultaneously: the one that you're reporting, which is dual incomes uh, to get the mortgage, and the one i 'm trying to refer to, which is a concerted effort in the seventies which began in the seventies to start taking more and more away from the middle class of which i would I would submit to you. Reagan was the outcome now the 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 the, the, the point and by the way, look at what happened under Reaganomics, which George Bush I called voodoo economics, and it turned out historically he was right, and the Laffler curve and all that stuff was going on in the late 70s. So to me, I'm looking at this saying to myself, gee, the problem isn't that they used to discount a female's earnings. The problem is, and I stated is, why can't it be that a single wage earner in America can support a family of four? Why did we ever accept that that wasn't the target? And that to fall below that target put the middle class in jeopardy? See, that is the right target. Let's just take as an example, step back for a minute. If every family in America that has two wage earners who can't even keep their heads above water together, but let's assume that every family with two wage earners, one of those wage earners is all it takes to stay afloat. That second wage earner would then be the person who would be able to help make sure there was adequate health insurance. They'd Mm -hmm. have the surplus to be able to invest. They'd have the ability, and by the way, to donate time to, call, to, to start to deal with some of our incredible problems like homelessness in this country. They'd have time to start dealing deal with all the other issues that we don't deal with as a society. So civic society, okay, our, our basic society is now more destitute because everybody is working incredible hours more than any other industrialized country, and they're doing it barely to stay afloat. What if we could unlock that potential, all that human potential? It'd be astronomical. So I say to us, the goal has to be to get to an America where no person who gets accepted to a public college has to pay for it, just like you don't have to pay for high school.
1: Let me bring this full circle again, Ronaldo, and uh, before we move on to any other topics, where do you see the Occupy movement going, and where do you think its lasting impacts at this point, probably too early to tell, but where do you think its lasting impacts might go and where they might reverberate in the next six months to a year?
0: Yeah, I, I really have no crystal ball. I'm just sort of watching it one day at a time. But I, the reason it's on the agenda for today's conversation is I'm trying to get people to focus on what's important about the Occupy Wall Street movement today. And I think this is a good number, by the way. I believe there's something like 1,600 cities around the world have now had Occupy demonstrations, some of them continuing for many weeks at a time. So it's not just the U.S. anymore. You have a mass group of people who have begun to realize that modern economic has not supported the great middle class. It's hurt them. And I'll tell you one other thing. You can't cut your way to prosperity. You have to grow it through jobs out of it. So we had a much higher debt in 1946 than we have today, but we grew out of that debt as a percentage of GNP by growing the GNP. We had an explosion of wealth between 46 and 66. And we're, you know, We were still coasting on that. Well, it's time to do that again. It's time to, if today, if 2011 were the equivalent of 1946, when we had just won the war and we were totally bankrupt and I mean, we were totally in debt beyond our ears and oh, we said okay now how are we going to fix the, the world the
1: triple what it is now as a percentage yep. of critique to
0: so if so go we're going to go product. fix I don't think it's triple but it's probably double but if you're going to fix the broken world which is what we set out to do in 1947 with the Marshall Plan so we adopted a global Marshall Plan like we did in 1947 I would, I submit to you we would create an amount of wealth in the next 20 years that would be many, many multiples of the wealth we created between 1946 and 1966. And even if you created the same amount of wealth as you created in that period, you would solve the entire deficit problem with a stroke of a pen. So this deficit thing is like another red herring. It drives me crazy. And what, what is the Occupy Wall Street movement doing today? It's saying stop, look, and listen. I've heard people complain, Howard, that, oh, my gosh, there's too many homeless people there and there's, you know, neer do Yeah, if you're homeless and there's a safe place to pitch your tent – why wouldn't you be part of Occupy Wall Street? If you're a college student and you can't get a job when you graduate, now why wouldn't you pet your tip at Occupy Wall Street? It's of going home to mom and dad. So there's a lot of people there that got no other place to go. That's true. But the, the one thing that seems to be in common, and I'm, I know the New York movement better than I know the ones in some of the other cities, and I don't think all of them are as peaceful as New York is, but in the New York situation, it's clear to me that what those people are saying is we're here because the system is broken and we're demanding that the system fix itself. They're trying to get our attention, and they're succeeding. Now, can they convert that attention? Can we convert the attention into positive future actions? I think so. And I believe that because if we start looking at the right questions, we're going to get the right answers. Some of you who've known me for a long time know one of my favorite quotes. I've been putting this out for decades. You can never get the right answer if you ask the wrong question. So, the right questions is what Occupy Wall Street's asking. Do I think they will continue to be an effort to ask those questions three, six months in the future? Yes, I do. Will it be as much in our face as it is now? I hope so, because until we address those questions, until we really focus on those questions, until we resolve those questions, we need to have an Occupy Wall Street to remind us that those are the questions.
1: Right. Uh, Before you go on, I have a a chart sitting in front of me. I wish I could just show it to you all, but since we're not visually on the air. um, The chart is from the Congressional Budget Office, and it shows – uh, the debt federal debt as a measure of gross domestic product and in 1940 before the war gross uh, debt was approximately 43 44 percent of gross domestic product the same number it was in 2009 2010 during the war it peaked at almost 120 percent so it was very close to a tripling during the war years um, and then came gradually right back down through the 70s and 80s at about 30%, uh, spike during the 90s at around a little over 40 And we're still, even though we're having lots of claims that gross domestic debt is huge and staggering and we're going to die under it, um, is really no greater than it's been on average over the past 70 years.
0: Yeah, And that's why it's a red herring. See, exactly. It's, it's, exactly. So people are – and what I like about Occupy Wall Street, and we could end on this point and go to the next if you like, but what I like is, see, people have been bamboozled. You know, the idea that they actually think Fox News is news is all by itself mind-boggling to me. You know, I think that people who like Fox News don't think it's news. They just happen to agree with the point of view. So my, when people get bamboozled into voting against their own best interests, because people have consistently voted for the last 30 years to hurt themselves, the middle class. Johnny Lunchbucket has been banging his head against the wall, and he's been doing it to himself. So if Occupy Wall Street is the wake-up call. Hey, folks, we've been doing it to ourselves. It's time to wake up. That alone justifies its existence. If you combine that thought with the one we talked about a minute ago, which is once people wake up and they go to the polls like they did in Ohio and say, wait a minute, we've got to hold on to the middle-class jobs. We don't want the unions to be busted because it turns out that the unions at least have some power. To keep us from getting destroyed, and the politicians want to take that away from us. So I'm really hopeful that now that people have um, uh, have been whacked on the side of the head, so to speak, the cosmic whack on the side of the head, Occupy Wall Street is telling us: until you figure out what the real questions are and start to address them, we got to sit here in the park. And I hope they make it through the winter. Okay, I well really let's
1: jump, let's jump across the globe to Tokyo, and do our Fukushima update, and. Uh, You had some interesting thoughts you were sharing with me before the show went on the air. I'd love to hear you repeat those again for our audience.
0: Yeah, so so, uh, there's two two things people need to remember. Fukushima, March 2011. As of today, they have not contained it. I just want people to remember this is November 10th we're talking. They have still not contained it. That's that's quite a statement. People said, gee, this could be almost as bad as Chernobyl. No, actually, folks, months ago it became much worse than Chernobyl, and it hasn't stopped. So cesium-37 is being dumped in the ocean and the air today. There are places, if you read our uh, Currents in Commerce, the last issue, we pointed out that there is a playground in Tokyo, which no human being should be allowed to walk on, let alone children, because it's so highly radioactive. And we, and we listed several uh, uh, readings of radioactivity in the Tokyo area, not way north in the prefecture where this Fukushima is. So what I wanted to point out, and why I'm going to do a Fukushima update, I want to do it every month, is I don't want people to lose track of what's happening. Fukushima has not ever stopped. Now, that's you, you got to. When you live in a closed loop system, okay, meaning the cesium 37 that goes in the water in Tokyo, it goes in the water in Japan rather, ends up somewhere. It doesn't go away, and the more you put in, the more there is, and the less diluted it is, and it is affecting us. It's going to affect us for generations. The 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 the, 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 the pollution in Tokyo is going to affect us for many generations. So what happened? That I'm really, and, and two things I wanted to report on. And, and every month I'm going to give you an d- update that I think is worth noting. First thing that's worth noting, last week, it was finally reported that artifacts of current fission were, were detected at Fukushima. Now, an artifact of current fission means that a, a, a telltale isotope is being created that can only occur if nuclear fission is occurring. Nuclear fission is what Fukushima, they supposedly shut down, and all that wa- water was to cool it so it could stop it. So So in other words, the
1: reactor is still reacting.
0: One of those reactors is still going off, and it's probably going off below the ground at a place they can't reach it because the water can't stop it. So you've got a a runaway nuclear reaction going on in Japan, and that's if everything else was in good order, which it is isn't at Fukushima, including all those above-ground ponds that are holding all that waste material that could come tumbling down. So two things to note. Number one, current... Vision is occurring at Fukushima. Nobody's reporting that that I know of, so folks you heard it first here. Number two, it's really critical. A business group became convinced in Japan this is the part I said earlier about not because they're being nice guys enlightened self interest they live in Tokyo. their kids play on playgrounds in Tokyo, and their businesses are getting hurt because of the damage that Fukushima's already done. So they concluded correctly that the Japanese government has been lying to them, which it has been. Now, we all know Tokyo Power's been lying, but that's we knew that before Fukushima. That's only gotten worse since. The Japanese government has not been telling the truth about the toxic pollution because they're afraid people will panic if they found out what's really going on in Fukushima. So this business group has petitioned the Japanese diet to per, to create an independent commission. This just happened three days ago. An independent commission to investigate the truth about Fukushima. What's really happening there now How bad out of control is it? How much radioactivity is being dumped in the water and the air? Where is that radioactivity falling? How toxic is it? What are the health hazards? What are the economic hazards of that continuing nuclear reaction? I ask you, folks, if Chernobyl was still making nuclear fission six months after it went off, what do you think you'd think about that? If Three Mile Island hadn't been shut down in a matter of days but kept going off, and got worse for six months. What would you think about that? And then I'll ask you one more question. That's this. What makes you think it won't happen here? In fact, you keep running nuclear reactors, it will.
1: We have something like, what, seven or eight times as many nuclear reactors in the United States as they do in Japan? Is, you know, I should that know that number, number off the
0: top of my head. I don't. Um, it's it's certainly way more than they have. Uh, and our reactors are tending to be very old right now. They're They're all bumping up against their original certified useful life. Uh, they're all getting automatic extensions. Most of them have enormous uh, safety violations and health violations. I believe San Onofre is still offline; hasn't been brought back up. Uh, there isn't there isn't a safe nuclear power plant in the world for no other reason. Certainly not in the United States, because each of them, in the normal operation, emits carcinogenic levels, toxic to human beings that will kill, that do kill, of strontium 90. And there's no other source of strontium-90 isotopes in the world right now but nuclear power in the normal operation. So if for no other reason the strontium-90 argument, uh, if for no other reason the the collection of toxic materials we can't bury and get rid of, if for no other reason it's a standing terrorism target, if for no other reason you could blow apart one of these nuclear things, in fact, the backup target is all, if you don't listen to the show, the backup target on 9-11 was a nuclear reactor plant. And had they hit that rather than the World Trade Center, they would have done far more damage. Way more people would have been disrupted, and uh, New York would have been a god-awful mess for a 1,000 years. So we're now sitting in a situation where, as a global society, we've, it, we have turned away from the, the fruit of the month club here. We, we stopped looking at the flavor of the month, which was Fukushima. We, okay, that's over with now. And the purpose of this report is to tell you it is not over. It's still going on. And they don't know how to stop it. And they're hiding that fact from the public, and the public's starting to get wise, and even normal business people who aren't nuclear scientists, who haven't written books on nuclear energy like I have, are going, wait a minute, this is getting scary. So I want people to be aware, and I want them to know that what goes on in Fukushima goes on. No John Dunn, No man is an island alone and to himself complete. Do not ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. So the bell that's tolling in Fukushima is tolling for all of us. It's a closed-loop system. We're all on the planet Earth. That cesium 37 has got to be dealt with. Those isotopes have to be dealt with. The fission has to be stopped. we got to get the, the genie back in the bottle, and it's nowhere near back in the bottle now.
1: Okay. Well, let's move from nuclear to lightning, which brings up our lightning round, a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate, and today our focus being on ETFs. Ronaldo, what would you like to say about ETFs?
0: Well, I, I actually, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to toss to you to start off with, Harold Howard, because I said something to you which was uh, a... I think a fair statement uh, about two weeks ago. I said, Howard, are you getting concerned there's a bit of a bubble? And people know what bubble means, a bubble like a real estate bubble. They've now experienced that. Before that, in 2000, there was a tech bubble. I think people remember what that was about. I said, "There's, you know, some smart people are saying there's an ETF bubble happening, and do you think we should cover that on the financial literacy section of the show? And you correctly said, well, well, Ronaldo, that's not quite true. There is a certain bubble, quote-unquote, happening in the non-asset bank backed ETFs. But in asset-backed ETFs, it's less of a problem. And I said, you know, that's a very thoughtful observation because people tend to classify all ETFs in the same category. So I said, why don't you explain to people the difference between an asset-backed ETF and a non-asset-backed
1: ETF? And, and actually, the difference is, is very simple. First, ETFs are stand for exchange-traded funds. They're a form of a mutual fund um, that trades on the markets like a stock. And the traditional ones, and by tradition, I mean things going back about 10, 12 years. That's how new they are. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, the very first one was a S&P 500 spider, as it was nicknamed. And it basically held representative shares of the Fortune 500 companies. Since that time, there are enormous permutations. It's not the Fortune
0: 500, the S&P 500.
1: I'm sorry. When I say Fortune, yeah, S&P 500. Um, thank you for catching me. Um, and over time, the variety and diversity of those types of ETFs have expanded. Now, in the beginning, most of them held real assets. You might buy a energy uh, ETF, for example, and it would hold shares of an oil company, a nuclear company, a solar company, whatever the subcategory. It actually held something in its entity, and it was, that's a actual asset base.
0: Well, I now, say, others, let's use gold. So if you have a gold ETF, somewhere there's gold backing up the exactly. value of that ETF. Exactly. Okay. Now, there
1: are other ETFs, and I there isn't really a technical name, but there's a great article that was published in the Financial Times uh, back in June about exchange-rated funds. And it got into this whole other area, which is actually more common in Europe than it is in the United States, and I'm not sure why that is, perhaps it's regulatory, um, where they created synthetic tracking indexes using other tools to roughly approximate the index of an area. So instead of holding actual assets, they had a complicated mathematical formula for the valuation of these entities. Now, and and the problem becomes, and it's somewhat like Madoff in a way, when Madoff was supposedly trading futures and options for his clients under some supposedly sophisticated formula, The total value of what he was supposedly trading was actually greater than the entire commodities exchange market held in real assets. It was a mathematical impossibility that he could actually have been doing real trading, which nobody happened to notice. Um, Actually,
0: one guy did, and he went to the SEC, and they didn't take it seriously.
1: Right, but it took him years to be taken seriously. Um, So the synthetic ones are the area where you have the potential for a bubble because – is there anything backing it? If, well,
0: okay. Okay, wait, just stop there. if prices so, start
1: to drop, how are you going to pay redemptions if you don't own anything that actually has value? But okay, let be, me take, you take it from here.
0: But then, I'm going to ask you to continue in a second, but what I want to just focus on for people is, so what Howard just described, he said, somebody comes up with an arcane mathematical formula to tell you what the approximate value of a thing should be that it doesn't own – and it sells you the right to own a piece of that which it doesn't own, which is based on a complex mathematical formula. That's what he just described. That is gambling. Actually, you've got better odds in Vegas. It's worse than gambling. Because you're letting somebody create a financial interest, interest instrument out of thin air. We have a word that we use for such things. They're called derivatives. So a non-asset-backed ETF is just another form of a derivative. And like many of because derivatives are still unregulated by both the U.S. and Europe. And people are afraid to regulate them now because derivatives could really bring the whole house of cards down over the euro, which we'll talk about next. Well, that derivative, that non-asset-backed derivative, because all ETFs are derivatives in a way, but this is a non-asset-backed derivative, is a pure, fictional, mathematical computation proposed by somebody that another guy or woman is willing to buy gullibly into. We tell you... The bottom line
1: of it is: is buyer beware. In other words, if you are buying or using ETFs, um, which are essentially a tool, make sure that what you're investing in actually holds real assets. Um, seems
0: simple, holds doesn't real it? Shares.
1: it? And those, those have issues themselves, obviously, but yeah.
0: No, you, ahead, know, you know what is like, Howard, to me? The way I describe it is it's like a shell game. You know, like that three you – know, there's three shells and there's a P under one of them, right? Mm-hmm. If you lift all three and there's still no P, you don't want to be there. In fact, if you lift one and there's no P underneath that shell, don't buy the shell. If you look inside the ETF and there's no there there, if there is no asset there, what are you doing buying the shell that wraps around the the asset that's missing? Exactly. The only reason people do this, folks, the only reason I can figure out is greed. It's the theory of the greater fool that I can buy into something that's mathematically so sophisticated that I will make money without even really risking money, and, of course, that is the essence of a bubble. And that's why people are saying, smart people are saying, there's a bubble in ETFs. And they're primarily referring to non-asset-based ones. Now, there are some people who also say there's a bubble in asset-based ones. Different conversation. Howard correctly pointed out when I posed that to him that you really cannot talk all ETFs, ETFs are not alike. Some have, the, have a pea under the shell, in which case you can look at the pea. You, you like gold? Okay, that's the pea in this case. So if you like the green P that looks like gold, you say, okay, I like an ETF that owns gold. That at least you, got, you know what the gold's worth that you can own. But if you look underneath the shell and there's nothing there, it's a non-asset-based one. Meaning mean, there's no asset inside the shell, then of course you'd want to stay away from it. So that's the whole idea, because that, that is a bubble. The bubble okay. is when you create artificial values with no underlying asset value.
1: Right. Before we move on, because we are, again, running through our clock quickly here, um, do you want to mention anything else in, on the other asset classes today?
0: Um, we, I think if I got started, we'd probably get going um, longer than we want. I, I think, class, we? let me just say one quickly thing. Uh, if people noticed, and I don't think people do watch this, I've been very negative for about six months now on all the um, commodities that deal with buildings. So that would be... The metals, coppers, and you can put lumber in that category, by the way. And they've all gone down a lot. They're going to keep going down. So avoid inv- investing in, in, in copper, and lead, and zinc, industrial metals. Avoid things like wood because as the total volume of construction, commercial and residential, keeps dropping, not only in the U.S., but by the way, globally, then the demand for those commodities keeps dropping. And, of course, the prices have dropped to the floor. So um, if you want to buy a copper hood for your stove, this is the time because copper is cheap and it ain't going back up in price in time in the near future. Conversely, continue to look at food. We keep warning people, telling people, you want to invest in food. You want to invest in And there's several ways you can invest. And the number one best way to invest in the commodity called food is real simple. Tear up your lawn and grow your own. The number one investment I recommend to people today is tear up their lawn and grow vegetables. And everybody can do it anywhere in the world. And by the way, you don't have to live in California. You can do it in the middle of Michigan, if you like. You just have to prepare for that kind of climate by using are very inexpensive ways to build greenhouses for yourself or buy them off the shelf. So the best investment you can make with your cash is to put it to work doing something you can control that feeds your families and will protect you from the grocery inflationary prices that are happening now and will continue to happen. And by the way, if they let you raise chicken in your neighborhoods, nothing better than fresh egg of your own chickens. And I've raised both chickens. I've raised... I've raised sheep. I've grown vegetables I, organically. All those things. It's very easy to do. Surprisingly, once you learn how to do it, best place you can put your money.
1: Okay. And on that note, let's move on to Europe. By the way, you know uh, what? That's the Second
0: best one I just thought of—I should tell people: anything you can do to create your own energy, because the cost of energy will continue to go up inexorably. Go ahead, Howard.
1: Okay. No, I was going to say let's let's talk Europe. And I think every time someone blinks, there's a new story coming out of Europe. Uh, markets rock it up, markets rock it down. that. what's really happening?
0: Okay, well, I'm glad. First of all, folks, please try to stay with me on this one. It's, it seems a little arcane. Like, why do I care what happens to the euro? It's over there. It's not here. I'm going to tell you why you're going to care in a second, and then I'm going to ask you for your patience to try and understand what it is I'd like you to know that could really make a difference in your life. So why you have to care is this. you got... Greece is not the problem. It never was. It's, 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 it's a pimple on an elephant. We all knew that Spain, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, these countries are, are referred to as the pigs and by their initials. And they were the countries that had debt structures to leverage their GNP and moribund or declining economies. What we know... Knew even going into this crisis. And if you go back three or four shows, four or five months even, in this program, you'll see that we started warning people about this many, 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 many months ago. And the problem we said you're going to have is not whether or not you can bail out of Greece, because you can. The problem is the euro itself. The euro inherently can't work as it's currently constructed. I had a wonderful conversation with Bernard Letier recently, who is one of the leading monetary theorists in the world, uh, who had something to say actually with the creation of the Europe long ago. And the problem is simply this. Can you imagine cutting paper if you took a pair of scissors and you ripped it apart and you put one blade or tine in your left hand and you put another blade in your right hand and you tried to whack at the, ca- at the paper to cut it? You would butcher the paper and you wouldn't really get a good job of cutting. You, what you'd have is a bunch of slashing. Okay? One of those blades is called fiscal policy. One's called monetary policy. When they're attached together like scissors, they cut paper beautifully and precisely. In other words, they make things happen in the material plane of reality. But when you destroy that tool, when you separate fiscal from monetary, when you take one blade and rip it apart from the other, you get something that's neither a knife nor a scissors and it's not good for either. So what's happening with the euro is simply this. You have a monetary authority, the euro, and you have fiscal authority, countries that make up the eurozone that share the euro as a currency. They have a second overlaying thing called the European Trade Union, which means any country in the European zone, Eurozone can trade freely across borders whether they have the same currency or not so England, which does not use the euro uses pounds, can trade freely with France and Germany without tariffs the euro was designed to create more cohesion between the countries so that when they trade it across borders which creates lots of efficiencies it's a very good thing in rising economic times it also tends to get countries to start pulling together so they start to see their own political and fiscal interests align now why is it important to you what happens to the euro? Because if the euro collapses, and I can guarantee you this, nothing they have done to date, I want to say it again, nothing that has been done to date will save the euro. So the, um, as we learned in Latin America in the 90s, if you keep throwing patches on something that's a balloon that's leaking air in every direction, you can patch all you want, you won't fix it. Sooner or later, you've got to look at the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is you don't have a fiscal and monetary authority that's unified. If there was a United States of Europe or a Federation of Europe, you could have a euro. But there isn't such a thing, and it's not likely to come in the near future. So what has to happen with the euro is very important, because until the Europeans properly address the euro and stop using this crisis as a way to punish profligate nations, meaning nations that spent more than they should have and relied on their rich European neighbors like Germany to carry them, and I'm not just including Spain and Portugal at this point, and, and, and in Greece, I'm talking about Italy, which is the third largest economy in Europe. When you do that, you run the risk of a financial collapse that's so big that even Germany can't fix it. So Germany is the reason the euro works. They stand behind it. And what's happening is the Italian crisis is so large that, there's, that Germany even couldn't fix it if it really gets out of control. What does get out of control mean? And then how does it affect you, the listener? Okay, out of control means they went from a four and a half percent interest rate on Italian bonds to now they hit seven and a half percent virtually overnight. That's exactly what Greece did just before it went to twelve percent. At seven and a half percent, Italy can survive. Tough, but they can still keep. They can keep. That's a pact they can make. The problem is there is no reason to believe it'll stop at seven and a half percent. Why would it? The fundamental problem is Italy keeps going deeper and deeper into debt, and fewer and fewer people want to buy its bonds. More and more banks are selling them and getting rid of them. So what happens to the $300 billion that they got to roll immediately, 300 billion euros, they got to roll immediately, and the $2 economy called Italy? What happens? Well, if it is unable to pay its debts as they mature, which is what they're headed towards, then the banks that own the sovereign debt will end up getting slammed real bad. Those banks, and particularly the French ones, which are heavily into Italian debt, as well as the German banks, don't have the excess capital to be able to withstand an enormous write-off. So if you're a French bank, Societe Generale, and you've been buying Italian debt because it was a country, so it's never going to go broke, you thought. And it's a Euro country, so no one will let it go broke. And all of a sudden, it goes broke. You've got a hole in your balance sheet you can't fill. Second problem. If you're a French bank, you're very active in the derivatives market. Oh, and guess who's been buying your derivatives? Americans. American banks, American financial institutions. So you see, the Eurozone craziness is actually not confined to Europe. Telling me that the Euro crisis doesn't affect us in America is the same thing as saying if you've got cancer in one part of your body, it won't affect you in the other parts. Yep, it'll kill you either way. So what's in your bloodstream anywhere is going to get in your bloodstream everywhere. The Euro is a key component of the global monetary and financial system. And as Bernard Letier I asked Bernard two weeks ago, I said, Bernard, what do you think are the chances of a global collapse, a global financial system collapse, within the next two years? And he said, well, rather than be alarmist, I'll just, quote, I agree with, at the very least, what Paul Volcker said, who I think Paul Volcker is probably will go down in history as one of the best Fed chairmen of all time, and the guy who conquered inflation, I believe, in the 70s, right, Howard?
1: Uh, yes, that is true.
0: Yeah. So so Paul Volcker said there's a 75% chance, and Bernard said, I think he's, he's being a little bit optimistic, but a 75% chance of a complete systemic global financial collapse within two years or less. Now, I'm an optimist, so I go, thank God we've got a 25% chance of fixing this. Well, one of the things that would c- trigger that collapse is the collapse of the euro. And one of the things that will trigger the collapse of the euro is if they don't face up to the reality that they cannot fix the euro by slapping patches on a broken problem since they have not got the ability to create fiscal unity with monetary policy then there's i think only one choice left and drumroll roll please howard and i'm going to stop on this note and take a question or two here's where the option is we meaning the academy i've now put this to some of the best thinkers in the monetary theory world we are recommending that a new approach be taken to the euro that will solve the problem instantly and not require trillions of dollars of new debt and here's what it is. We want to create what we call a neodrachma, meaning the old Greek drachma brought back. And we want to create a neo-lira, so that's the old Italian lira brought back. And the old peso brought back as a neo. What does the neo-currency mean? It means a reflection of the earlier currency. And what I want the neo-drachma to do is if you're a Greek and you're growing olives and you want to sell olives to a Greek, we want to let you do that in neo-drachmas. In other words, at the price that labor says would be the right and fair price for two Greeks to transact. Now, if you want to sell the olive to Spain, somebody in Spain, you've got to sell it in euros. So a two-tier currency structure is the best solution. And I think some of the best thinkers in the world are coming around to this now. The first tier is the euro, the umbrella currency. So as between European countries, you transact in euros. But each country then is allowed to create its own currency for internal purposes only. Why is that important? Because if I can sell an olive as a Greek to another Greek at a much cheaper price, because the drachma is depreciated, because then the drachma will float freely against the euro, so it will rise and change in value every day, then we have a chance to rebuild our country by building up our domestic economy. And then when we're ready to go back into global commerce, when we want to start selling olives to the Spaniards again, okay, we'll be strong enough and big enough, we can sell them in euros. But in the meantime... What we'll be doing is creating jobs in our local domestic economy by transacting in our own currency, which is not inflated relative to our labor markets. Now, that's somewhat complex. But let, me, I hope
1: let me ask you a question, though, though, to try to understand this, because I'm not myself 100% clear. But if I'm a Greek raising olives, and I can sell them in Greece for, let's say, 25 units of whatever measure it is, and if I sell them to Germany, I get 50 Why would I sell them for twenty-five in Greece if I get fifty outside?
0: Uh, Let me explain. First of all, you have to get them to Germany, so you have to pay for the oil to get them there in euros because it didn't come in Greece. So all of your transaction costs when you start crossing national boundaries, borders, start to go up. So if you want to, if you just want to stay local, you really want to focus on growing your local economy so you can re-enter global commerce the way you do it is by creating a price that's fair to the other guy now why is the price of olives higher in spain than it is in greece simple the french grow olives too and the french have a very strong national policy to artificially support agricultural prices so all agricultural prices in europe are artificially higher than they should be so the result is the demand goes down so two answers to your question why would you sell them to a Greek instead of a German, first of all, you'll sell more of them because demand is not going to be suppressed by an artificially high price. So if olives are 10 cents a quart instead of 20 cents a quart, you're going to sell a whole lot more olives, aren't you? And if you don't have to deliver them in a truck, you can just walk next door with them, you're going to save all kinds of transportation costs. Now, obviously, there's a truck in here somewhere, but if the truck's going one mile instead of 1,000 miles, it changes the equation.
1: right? Right, right.
0: So that's why you want to be able to transact locally until so you can get strong enough again. So you can reemploy enough people in your domestic economy that you're no longer going deep into debt. And while you're doing that, then you'll fix your your, your collection of taxes because we're going to... What I would stipulate, it, the neodrachma in the Greek sense has to be allowed to do two things. One, for any transactions that occur within the Greek borders, you can use a neodrachma instead of a euro, and undoubtedly they'll be half-priced compared to euros. Number two... You can pay your taxes in them. So the Greek government then has to start running itself on the economy that is native to Greece. In other words, the tax money will come through the drachmas, and those drachmas then will maintain the the limitation that they can't print more drachmas than they can actually transact in. Right now, they can print an unlimited... They tried printing an unlimited number of euros by going to the bond market. So it's really important, very, very, very important, that you... You've got to give a breather when an economy goes south, and the breather is to let it start doing what it used to do before it got too big for its britches and started selling debt on the open market in euros, because everybody believed incorrectly that Germany would never let them go broke, when in fact Germany might very, very well let people go broke.
1: We're getting very close to the end of our show, Ronaldo, and and I want to finish it up with a question from one of our readers, and you've actually answered many of the, the questions that have come in. Uh, which I didn't specifically mention then. Um, But the last question is, what about the euro's survival? Will it happen?
0: Not unless they get real. And and so I said there's a 75% chance of a – by the way, the euro crash is not the only thing that can trigger a 75% chance of collapse of the global financial system. There's a lot going on in the United States that can trigger it also. But if you want to get the 25% outcome, the, 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 the outcome where it doesn't crash, the monetary system, you must address the fundamental problem of the euro. And the fundamental problem is that it absolutely cannot be patched. And you cannot cut your way to prosperity. Absolutely can't do it. So all you'll do is create more civil unrest, and you'll delay, you'll kick it down the can down the road, maybe another year or two, but you will actually have an eruption. That's why I asked Bernard and others, what's the chance within two years? Because I don't believe the can can be kicked down the road more than two years. That's that's the outer limit. So they have to address the euro crisis in real terms, which is creating... Dual parallel system of currencies, which takes the pressure off the euro, and immediately lets these countries restabilize by going back and building their domestic economies, reallocating the debt. By the way, when that happens, you will see debt haircuts. You know, you you will see people like's going on in Greece, where fifty percent of the debt has been cut, and been, the debt has been cut in half by fifty percent. And you'll see the same thing in Italy, by the way. But that's okay. That we can survive with. What we can't survive with is a crash of the euro. That's what that's that's what Lehman Brothers did, and it was much smaller than Italy.
1: Right, right, very much so. Well, again, Ronaldo, any last thoughts before we conclude tonight's uh, today's show?
0: No, I'm. I, you know, these are very complex questions, and I really hope people will think about them and send in questions and we'll keep talking about them. I don't expect people to, you know, be able to hear this one time and integrate it. But what I would love is questions about what this means to me and what does this mean to you, the listener. What does it tell you about what you need to do in your life? How do you protect yourself against these in certain times? <clears throat> That's what I'm really interested in. I'm also interested in people asking questions about <clears throat> how to piece together things that they hear from other sources. For example, and I'll end on this, a very conservative uh, organization, Brown Brothers, which is the oldest investment bank in America, uh, put out a paper recently saying, don't worry about uh, Italy's debt. It's only 7.5%. Mathematically, in, the, in a perfect world, it would be 4.5% probably, so it's only three percent more and they can support that so within, you know, ten years it'll all work itself out. And I was shocked by that because uh, that misunderstands the basic problem, why would it stop at seven and a half? It went from four and a half to seven and a half in the space of a couple of weeks. Why wouldn't it go to twelve like Greek did? Well the Greeks did. Why wouldn't it go to fifteen or twenty? Or worse yet, where it is headed, why wouldn't it go to a point where no matter what interest rate you offered, people aren't going to buy it? Because the risk of default is just too high. And when you've got a system that's as integrated as our global financial system is, when the risk gets too high to refund, mean to reprice and redo the Italian debt, that will put a strain on the euro that even the Germans can't fix. At that point, you don't have a minor economic recession or a major economic recession or even a minor economic dislocation. You have the potential for a global financial collapse.
1: Okay, well, thank you, Ronaldo. Let me remind our listeners that we'll be back next month, second Thursday of the month at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, we thank you all for listening today. And uh, again, if you have comments, questions uh, that you'd like to either hear on the air next week or re- refer to, uh, please check the website for the Academy. It's www.worldbusiness.org. Um, and uh, the email address is there. You can shoot those comments into us and we'd be glad to refer to them next time around. And again, thank you, Ronaldo, and thank you all for listening today.
0: Thanks, Howard. Thank you, all the listeners. Bye-bye.